you're married or in a relationship, raise your hand. Okay. The, today's message, I hope, I pray, that it will be more than just simply learning about Jesus, learning something new about Jesus. But I pray today will be something that you get for your marriage, for your relationship. Because as we'll see, Jesus meant for our relationships, for our marriages, to be so much more than society makes them out to be today. So my prayer is that Jesus will speak, not just to you individually, but as well to your relationships as well. In our day, reserving sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife is something that is viewed to be old-fashioned. But actually, as we look at history and we look back, we discover that the opposite is actually the case. That this whole idea of sex being for a husband and a wife is actually the opposite. Sex was something that was not reserved for just a husband and wife. Sex was something that was just for anybody. In the ancient world, in, in, the, in the ancient world outside of Israel, um, sex was not regarded as an activity restricted towards marriage. It had little to do with religion, although there were some fertility cults that practiced temple prostitution because they believed that human fertility also helped nature to be fertile. Try and figure that one out later. But literally in the ancient world, the sexual motto of that time would have been carp diem, roughly translated, seize the day. If you have the opportunity, go for it. That would have been the culture that Jesus came into. That would have been the culture that Jesus lived in at the time. A married woman who had sex outside of marriage was guilty of adultery. A married man was not, unless he had sex with another man's wife. And in that case, the violation wasn't against the woman, it was actually a violation against the man because it was a property crime. A man was also outlawed from condoning his wife's adultery. So he would have to pretty much shun or divorce her if she committed adultery. In the ancient world, sexuality was celebrated as a means for procreation and as an appetite to be gratified. Much like an appetite for food or drink today. Greek physicians, I got a kick out of this one this week. Uh, Greek physicians often diagnosed women with hysteria, which comes from the Greek word for uterus. As you think about this, it'll kick in. 
a condition they said was caused by a wandering uterus. They said hysteria could be cured by more intercourse. Yeah. The Roman physician Rufus prescribed sex to adolescents for a cure for melancholy, epilepsy, and headaches. One might think that his practice was quite a booming practice in his day. In the context of marriage, to the extent that it found meaning, it was more of a political or an economic thing that was done. Wealthy families in Egypt and much of the Near East, brothers would often marry their sisters to keep property in the family, to keep the inheritance within the family. In the Roman household, the family was considered the foundation of the city. In order to keep the empire growing, families had to continue to grow. So it was often at young ages that they would begin their families. And it was more of a civic duty that if you could not bear children, you were looked down upon because you couldn't build up the empire of the Roman world. But then there's a man that comes into a picture of cults, of temple prostitution, as sex being something that was allowed in any form, chosen. But Jesus' teaching on marriage and sex are foundationally and fundamentally different than that of the ancient world. And if you look in John chapter 2, you see a story of Jesus coming to a wedding. A wedding in those times would have been the biggest and most highest priority of the time. A wedding typically lasted seven days. Not just one, not just for an evening, but seven day celebration. It was something that seemed to go on forever. Families would invite large numbers of people, sometimes the whole whole village. Anything else that was going on was dropped. The wedding was given the highest priority as they would come and they would celebrate the union of these two people. Refusal to come to a wedding was actually considered an insult. It was customary actually to have too much food at weddings. Because as you read the story in John chapter 2, you will see that the host ran out of wine. To, To run out of wine, to run out of food was considered an insult to the people that you had invited. Because you were meant to be the best host there was in that time. You were required to provide all of the food, all of the drink for the seven-day period of this feast. And as they came together, they run out of wine. Jesus' mother comes to him and asks Jesus to help. 
Well, you'll see quickly that Jesus kind of hesitates and he kind of pushes back to his mom and he says, why do you involve me in this? My hour has not yet come. You see, Jesus knew something that everyone else didn't. You see, Jesus knew that if he turned water into wine, if he did a miracle, that there was going to be a clock that was going to start ticking. Because the moment he did a miracle, everyone was going to be watching him. His ministry would officially begin if he did a miracle. And so he hesitates. But finally, he ends up providing. Jesus acted. The host relaxed and kind of calmed down and felt the tension of the moment leave. And the party resumed. But for Jesus, there was something going on in his mind that no one knew about. He realized that the cross was coming. He would have known that his time to suffer for us would be drawing close. In Matthew 19, 4 through 6, another day, Jesus tells the interpretation of the Torah about marriage. He says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them all male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and will be united with his wife. The two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Marriage, Jesus was saying, is not simply a matter of the heart in terms of the economic or a social institution that takes place. But it was a God-directed covenant that reflects the human capacity for self-transcendence. The human capacity for community with another person. It was a joining of the spirit and of flesh. It was not a simply a matter of obliging the state. It was not filling out paperwork. It was not having everything lined up so that when you filed your taxes, you wouldn't get audited. But God was saying there's something deeper here. Jesus connects marriage to creation. In Genesis, God is making creation good by separating. If you actually look in the first chapter of Genesis, God is going through and each day he's creating these new things. But you'll notice that he says that he separates the land from the sea. Separates the light from the darkness. And the heavens from the earth. But then he comes to man and woman. And he does something that he hasn't done yet. He joins them together. He brings them together. To marry is to enter an act of divine creation. What God has joined together. 
See, even sexually, sexuality, one flesh, is the most intense and physical expression of this uniting together. Walter Wegener wrote, Marriage begins with a promise. A man and a woman stand in a church or a chapel or a backyard before each other, before witnesses and before Almighty God. They make a vow. They make a promise to one another to give their word. They give their word to each other. That's what a marriage is built on. A marriage is built upon this promise that is freely offered, fully embraced, joyfully witnessed, and painstakingly kept. That's what it means to come together in marriage. Sometimes people will say, well, I don't need a piece of paper. But here's the thing you need to realize. It was never about a piece of paper. It was never about simply having a document that said that we are husband and wife. That's not what it's about. It's about coming together and joining something together that only God can join together. Only God can unite two people. It's only when a relationship is in God that you can become one flesh. When I, when I perform weddings, I like to tell the couple that today is not simply a day where one, two people become one. But in reality, it's when husband, wife, and God become one flesh. It's the truest form coming together. It's a whole nother subject and a whole nother time. But think about that. Husband, wife, God. Three people coming together. Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's not a coincidence. But we'll come back to that sometime else. A man and a woman give their word to each other. The world of change and instability. There's one thing that remains true there's one thing that they can always fall back on and that's the thing that they started their marriage on it's that promise that you will be there in sickness and in health till death do you part the reason a wedding vow can be a moving time or an emotional time. I don't know that I've performed a wedding yet where I haven't had either one of the two, if not both, the bride and groom start to cry during their vows. There's a couple of reasons that could be, but we won't get into that. You didn't get that. Okay. It's a frightening time as well. Because it's a lifetime promise. It's not something that we say we're going to do today and tomorrow it's an option. But God unites to people together. The promise, according to Jesus, is not just to avoid adultery or divorce. 
But it's this pursuit of oneness on every level, on the physical, the intellectual, and the spiritual. A oneness that does not diminish the individuality, the individuality of each person, but only makes it that much more stronger. To think that you as an individual now strengthen the other individual. It only makes you that much stronger. So Jesus came and he changed the idea. He changed the mindset on what marriage was truly about. But he also changed what sex was really about. I know what you're thinking. Why is he talking about sex in church? God didn't create it by accident. There was a purpose. Sex had a new context when Jesus came. And he began to teach. In the ancient world, one's primary loyalty was to their parents. But the man and the woman are to leave their parents and to create a new primary loyalty to one another. A union that their union with each other would be expressed through sexual intimacy, becoming one flesh. In other words, sex is a kind of a sacrament. It's not, but it's kind of like one. When two people are truly united together... It is an outward sign that points to an inward reality. It's a spiritual state. Sex was meant to be something that was spiritual. There was a uniting of two people becoming one. In sexual intimacy, somehow, two people are are knitted together. They're connected, and their souls are connected to each other. You see, sex has a spiritual meaning as well as a biological function. Sex wasn't just simply to be something that pleasures ourselves. It wasn't something that was simply to be a pleasurable thing, but it was something to be spiritual in the aspect of two people uniting together and becoming one with each other. You see, it's not just sex. It's not just sex. We can't use that excuse. We can't just say, well, that, that's, it's just sex. It's just sex. It's okay. A lot of times, even you know, younger kids, high school, junior high kids saying, well, it's just sex. It's, everyone's doing it. No, it's so much more than that. Because whether you mean to or not, you're joining two things together. You're joining two people coming together as one flesh. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, it says, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. I don't know about you, but this was not a passage that I was taught in Sunday school. 
They were naked and felt no shame. Man, you guys are really, like, I'm talking about sex, and you're really like, why is he talking about sex? It's okay to laugh about sex. It points to the goodness of the human body. When Adam and Eve were created, they didn't have on clothes. God did not say, I create you, and when I created you, it was good. Now here, please put on these clothes because I can't stand to look at you anymore. Our truest selves, hence the reason we come out of the womb naked. The truest, purest form of creation And that is when two people come together. Genesis, verse, Genesis verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1 says, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Notice that Eve does not mention Adam. I sometimes wonder if this was kind of a crush to his little ego at this point. I mean, it's kind of, I can picture him saying, like, I was there too. I mean, come on. Do I get any credit for this? But no, it's God. Eve gives credit to God. God is mentioned deliberately because God is involved. When two people come together and they have sex, and they have a child. Think about it. I was going to go into all the details that happened. Like, chemically. Not physically. And when you think about all of the things. That goes on inside of a woman's womb. To create a child. Other than having sex. You have nothing to do with it. Everything is totally out of your control. You're vulnerable. To this creation inside of you. You see God is involved. Sexual intimacy for Eve. Was this rich harmony. This rich phenomenon. That involved a connection. Of her husband of herself, and of God. And when that connection comes together, a child is conceived. God is deeply involved in our sexual relationships. One of the ways that we learn about how culture thinks about sexuality is through the language that's used to describe the sexual act. For instance, having sex connotes that the notion that it's a commodity one can possess or has control over. Then there's also doing it. Expresses a, a casual or, as um, John Ortberg says, an animal understanding of sex. But Jesus taught that the main word for sex in the Torah is the Hebrew word yadeh, 
which is generally translated to know, to observe, to study closely, to be a student of. Now, you see, if sex was just simply sex, it wouldn't be something that's done to know another person or to observe them, to know who they truly are, to study them closely, to become a student of the other person. You see, sex in its truest form is not about the pleasure that we receive, but it's about the other person. And when sex is just simply sex, it's all about us. It's all about me. God says that sex is to be about the other person. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who, who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. You see, the people would have known they would have known the, the phrase that he said, you know you shall not commit adultery. They knew the Ten Commandments. They knew the law of the time. They knew that that was the thing that you couldn't do. But then Jesus adds again. You find Jesus adding that even if you look at a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. You see, this was the end of the double standard around sex. Jesus is not saying that to simply look at someone and experience sexual attraction is wrong. He's not saying that. This is one of those many places that he is addressing the core issue of what it means to be a good person, which is to have a good heart, not simply merely looking at a right behavior. A good person is not someone or a good person is not someone who simply avoids adultery. A good person is one who has learned to relate to women not as sexual objects. A good person would not commit adultery even if he had the chance to get away with it. You see Jesus is addressing the matter of your heart. What is in your heart when you look at a woman or a man? What is the matter of your heart? And it's important to notice that Jesus does not say anything about putting any fault on the woman that you're looking at. Because that's what we do today, right? In most rape cases, when the man gets to stand, has to go on the stand and testify, he'll say, well, she was dressed a certain way. The, prosecutor, or the defense will bring in things to try to say that this woman was slept with a lot of men, and they'll bring her hist a lot of men, and they'll bring her history into this and say that she was dressed a certain way and that she wanted 
what he gave her. I wish they would hear what they're saying. They're saying that she wanted to be raped. No, she didn't. Because, see, it's not a matter of the woman. It's the matter of what the man chooses to do. And that can be reversed as well. It's not how a man dresses. But it's a matter of how the woman feels in her heart. You see, because the choice is what Jesus is saying is to guard your own heart. You can't do anything about that other person, but what you choose to think, what you choose to feel inside yourself is under your control. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wife just as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? Why do we love our spouses? Because Jesus says there's something deeper. There's something more valuable to a person, more intimate about this person that you call your spouse than simply being a ring on a finger or a piece of paper in a scrapbook. But it's about the true intimacy that comes about as two souls becoming one flesh. A divine covenant. of Two lives becoming one. And all of this teaching coming from a man who was never married. It never tells us in the Bible that if women liked Jesus. It never tells us about the giddy group of girls in the back giggling because he's so like handsome looking or anything. But it says that Jesus was tempted as every other human is tempted. And all of us at one time or another have been tempted with lust, with sexual desires. Jesus knew. Jesus knew what it felt like to, to be who we are. Jesus lived the purest life that a person could live. But he calls us, even in our relationships, not to be about ourselves, but to be about the other person. To commit our relationships to something deeper than simply being husband and wife. But to remember that the whole meaning of marriage is the foundation of God. Is that God bringing about something divine in each one of us. 
see your spouse? Is your life. Your spouse is that person that gives you life. That brings you joy. If you do not have that, I know I'm not saying that marriage should be perfect because we can all testify to that today that it's hard. But if you cannot find joy in your spouse, you ask, need to ask yourselves the hard question, why? Because it could come to the main reason, this, the whole reason, the foundational reason is because you have a misunderstanding about what marriage is. And you need to realize that there's something so much more valuable than just simply having someone else to help you with the kids around the house or to help you buy things for the grandkids or someone to go out to eat with every once in a while. But there's meant to be a divine relationship between you and your spouse and God. One of the things that I struggled with before becoming in ministry was what am I going to do with like marriages? Like, how, what's going to be my policy? Because I, I struggled with the whole idea of two people who, who don't believe in God coming to me and asking me to marry them. Because as a pastor, I have to, to stand up in front of a crowd of people and put God's blessing on a relationship. And if you remember that in the Ten Commandments it says, do not take the Lord your God's name in vain. So how am I supposed to to bless something with God's blessing that God should not happen? What do I do? So the first thing I'll do is I'll talk to a couple. I'll see if there's any interest in God at all. Where are they spiritually? It's just my personal conviction because I know a lot of other pastors will just say, well, if I don't do the wedding, they're just going to go somewhere else and get married anyway, so I might as well just do it. I can't. However, if one spouse is a follower of Christ, and one is not. Then what do I do? That's a whole other situation. But here's my philosophy, my thinking. That I believe that the God that the one spouse follows is greater than anything else involved in the other spouse's life. That I believe God can use that spouse to transform the other. To change the life of that other person by how they live. So I'll marry if one is not and one is. But ask yourself, what is the value of your marriage? 
What is the value of your relationships? Because Jesus says that at the very foundation of every single one of us is God. The question we have to ask, is that true for us? Is God truly the foundation of our relationships? Stand with us this morning. If you are here with your spouse, as we pray this morning, I want you to put your arms around each other. If you're not here with your spouse, that's perfectly fine. Do it in your head. But let's pray this morning. Jesus, without going through all the formal ceremony and without going through all the details, God, I pray that this would be a reuniting of two people. I pray that lives would be changed from this moment forward, that relationships would be healed that love would be rekindled within each person. I pray from this moment forward, it would not simply be husband and wife in a relationship together, doing their own separate things, living life their own ways, but just coming together at night to to sleep in the same bed. But God, I pray that today, relationships would be a relationship between their God, their creator, and their loved one. I pray that you would mend relationships today. I pray, God, that you would help these couples to be serious and ask themselves the hard question. What's in our way? What's keeping us from this love that God longs for us to have together? God, I pray that you would give them the courage to stand together through anything that comes their way. That there wouldn't be a battle, a struggle, a fight, an argument, anything that can separate them from one another as they have become one flesh and a divine creation. Jesus, we bless these relationships in your name. We we bless them in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we proclaim that you are in control and no one else. God, live in their lives as they continue to grow, to know each other, to observe each other more closely, and to become a student of each other. We praise you, Jesus, today. Amen.